Well, during the days of Joshua, we read in Joshua 18.1 the following. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Shiloh was the place we were introduced to last week. It was the place where the initial tabernacle was first set up. It was also a place for significant national assemblies for the people of Israel, which is why we met a family of Elkanah and his two wives, one of them being Hannah, who was barren, making this pilgrimage of sorts to Shiloh. Because as we're told in the book of Joshua, chapter 19 and verse 21, Shiloh was a place in which Israel often gathered. And it was in Shiloh at one of these assemblies that we meet Hannah. We saw last week that after conceiving a child in answer to her prayer, she expressed her praise to God in song. We were also introduced to a man named Eli, who was a priest serving at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And we're going to talk more about him and see more about him today. But one of the parts of Hannah's prayer that stuck out to me as I was reading it again this week are verses two or chapter two, verses three to five, where she talks about a time when the proud and the arrogant would be brought low. She uses the following words in chapter two, verse nine. She says, God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Now we see the truthfulness of these words that Hannah spoke in today's passage. We will see the Lord guard the feet of a faithful young boy named Samuel, and we will see the wicked sons of Eli cut off. Just as Hannah was the main character last week, this week the focus is on her little son, at this time, Samuel. Both sections of our text are framed with words about Samuel. I want to show you this quickly. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is the first verse in our text this morning. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, that's Hannah's husband, And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. That's the first bookend. Notice the second bookend, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Same phrase. Chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 1. It serves as a bookend of all that comes in in the middle. Two bookends of all that comes in the middle between, which we will look at in a moment. Three times in these verses we're told that Samuel ministers before the Lord. And if you're familiar with that language in the Old Testament, it almost always is associated with the activity of the priesthood. In fact, he's ministering in the temple under Eli the priest. And in chapter 2, verse 18, we're told that Samuel wears a linen ephod, which was what a priest would wear. So Samuel here is pictured as a young priest who is emerging as a priest in the people of Israel. But look at the second section. The second half of chapter 3, verse 1 says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now that should trigger your thinking. That's prophet. That's a prophetic activity. We've just been talking about Eli being a priest. Now it's shift to talking about a prophet. And then the 
section bookends with chapter 4, verse 1, where we read, and the word of the Lord, or sorry, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So in the previous section, Samuel is this priest type, and in the second section, Samuel is this prophet. We move from a wordless nation of Israel to a word reaching all of Israel through Samuel the prophet. This is pointing to the fact that Samuel, while serving in a priestly capacity, also serves in a prophet's capacity. Israel needed a king. That's what we're told in the days of the judges, which is these days here. Israel had no king, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So we need a king. Wait. Before we need a king, we need a priest, and we need a prophet. That's what 1 Samuel 2 and 3 is about. Before we need a king, we need a priest and a prophet. And Samuel was given for that purpose. Those, that's going to be the outline of our sermon. Those two sections, before we need a king, first section, we need a priest, a faithful priest. Second section, before we need a king, we need a faithful prophet. We're going to see Samuel fulfill those roles, and then we're going to see how Jesus ultimately fulfills those roles and the implications it has for us as his people. So these two points will have the same two subheadings. We're going to talk about why we need a priest or a prophet and then how God provides a priest or a prophet and the lessons we learn from these activities of God. So first of all, before we need a king, we need a faithful priest. And I want to talk first, to, first about why we need a priest. We're told in chapter 2, verse 12. Let's pick up our reading there. Now the sons of Eli, these would have been the priests, two sons, who were working with him in the tabernacle. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. We could say, some translations even indicate this, they were scoundrels. They were wicked They were evil. They were sinful. We might expect that Hannah's prophecy that we just talked about would first be fulfilled among Israel's enemies. God would bring down the arrogant and the proud of the nations. But actually, the first place that we encounter the enemies of Israel is within the priesthood of Israel. The spiritual leaders of God's people Those called to help people know the Lord didn't know the Lord. What a tragic commentary on the state of God's people at this time. What could be more tragic for the people of God than those appointed to spiritual leadership being wicked men who don't know the Lord? And as we read in other parts of the Old Testament, the spiritual leaders would speak a lie and God's people love to have it so. So what are the ways their worthlessness is being displayed? Why does this commentary, why is this commentary given to the sons of Eli? How are they manifesting that they don't know the Lord? Well, the text gives us two specific ways. The first is sacrificial immorality in terms of their task, what they're doing in the the tabernacle. And the second is sexual immorality, which is what they're doing personally with their own bodies. 
So let's look at each one of those in turn. First of all, sacrificial immorality. Look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 2. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. What's the problem with that? Didn't the law of God make provision for the priest to take a part of the sacrifice when it was being offered? Well, yes, it did. Leviticus chapter 7, 31 and 32, we read, The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for the Aaron and his sons. In other words, for the priest and his family. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution for the sacrifice of your peace offerings. The priest was allotted the breast and the right thigh, but the priest in Shiloh were trying to get even more. See, they took some of the people's portion as well. They stuck the fork in the pot and came up with whatever they could get, regardless of the portion that God had assigned to the priest or to the people. But the priest not only took some of the people's portion, they took some of God's as well. Notice that the priests are violating God's law by taking the meat when? Before it's burned. Look at verses 15 and 16. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let him burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. The fat of the animals was the Lord's portion, according to Leviticus 3. But the priest insisted on taking the meat with the fat still on it, essentially essentially stealing what belonged to God himself. And if that weren't enough, if the people wouldn't cooperate, they would strong-arm God's godly worshipers who wanted to just follow the word of the Lord. The priests would become thuggish and threaten and intimidate. Essentially, they were treating the sacrifice of God as their own barbecue buffet. They were stealing the food for themselves, which meant stealing the food from the people and from God. Their God was their belly. Yet, there was even more rottenness in the priesthood. We not only see sacrificial immorality, but we see sexual immorality. Look at verse 22, where we read in chapter 2, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Not only were Eli's sons violating the laws of sacrifice, but they had turned the temple into a brothel. Why did they do this? Why this sacrificial and sexual immorality? Well, we're told they did not know the Lord. What was God's assessment of their practices? Look at verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. It's a sad commentary on the state of God's people when spiritual leaders behave like Eli's sons. And unfortunately, that activity is not limited to the Old Testament. Today, for some, pastors 
they take on a posture of the sons of Eli. They're thuggish and threatening and intimidating to God's people. Some church members take on the posture of Eli's sons and become threatening and thuggish and domineering to their pastors. But it's a real problem in spiritual leadership. We've seen it displayed in characters like Mark Driscoll or James McDonald. Men who use their platforms to intimidate. Brothers and sisters, you must never allow an elder to serve in this congregation who behaves that way. Who is domineering over the flock. There is no place. There's, there's that kind of leadership in politics, which thankfully is not marked by all politicians, right? That, 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 that's marked in business. That's marked in school systems and other places. That must not be in the church. Let alone among its leadership. This is a direct violation of 1 Peter 5.3 where shepherds are called to shepherd the flock of God by not domineering over those in their charge, but serving the flock. Well, as if the bullying and thuggish nature of the sons of Eli wasn't enough, we also see sexual immorality present often in spiritual leadership, like the recent sexual abuse report that was released from the SBC, where spiritual leaders commit sexual sin with the very people they are called to love and serve. And some like Johnny Hunt, are restored to public leadership after six months. And thankfully, the president of the SBC, Bart Barber, spoke out against that. As a Southern Baptist church put a known sexual, immoral man back in pastoral leadership after six months. This is why the New Testament sets qualifications for those who are to serve in spiritual leadership. Elders and deacons are to be mature and holy men who know God, who pursue sexual purity, and who serve with humility. And pray for us. I don't read these statistics with any degree of joy. I weep, and I take heed to myself, lest I go and do likewise. We as spiritual leaders, as pastors and deacons, we strive to hold one another accountable and pray for each other. And, but if we're not vigilant, if we're not watchful, if we're not prayerful for the Lord to deliver us from temptation, any one of us can fail. Any one of us can fall. And if we ever disqualify ourselves, it is your responsibility to remove us. And if we won't listen, you need to move on. And try to bring as many people as you can with you. That's the priesthood and what the conditions were in the state of Israel at the time. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. How God provides a priest. In the middle of this sacrificial and sexual mess, God is at work. And he always is. Never forget that either. It's too easy for Christians today to, say, to see sin in the church and give up on the church. 
Christians don't behave that way, brothers and sisters. They don't give up on the church until Jesus gives up on the church. And he's not giving up on the people of Israel here. And we must not give up on the church either. First of all, notice what God's doing as he provides a priest. First of all, in the work of judgment on the present priesthood. He's not ignoring what the sons of Eli are doing. Hophni and Phinehas are their names. And they're turning the tabernacle of God into a place where sin was committed instead of sin being confessed. But God's not overlooking it. Look at chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. This is Eli talking to his sons. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God's not overlooking the sin in Eli's house. Eli tried to warn them of their danger, But notice what we read. The boys would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Notice what this text does not say. It does not say that the reason the Lord had decided to put Hophni and Phinehas to death was because they didn't listen to Eli. They didn't listen to Eli because the Lord had already determined to put them to death for their sin. The son's resistance to their father was not the rationale of God's judgment. It was the evidence of God's judgment. This is fearful. The text is teaching that the sons of Eli were so firm in their rebellion that God eventually confirmed them in it. So much so that they remained utterly spiritually unmoved by the warning of God's judgment and the pleas for repentance that came through Eli. Now, our job is not to question or comprehend this, but to deal soberly and seriously with the reality of what sin can do if left repeatedly and unconditionally unchecked by repentance. It does not leave us the same way. It pushes us more toward the Lord or hardens us more against Him, depending on how we respond to it. See, see the, and the sons of, Levi, uh, of Eli here are committed high-handed, they're committing high-handed sin, what the Old Testament called high-handed sin. It is right there in the midst of the tabernacle. So God is dealing very seriously and very sternly with the, the sons of Eli here. But we need to see this as a warning for ourselves lest we begin to grow comfortable with sin. Unless we begin to think that sin is not a big deal. Lest sin take us farther than we intend to go, cost us more than we want to pay, and keep us longer than we're willing to stay. But in addition to this work of judgment that is a manifestation of God's goodness to his people, that he's ridding the people of Israel of this bad priesthood, he is also at work through mercy. Even as God removes unfaithful leaders, he's replacing them with faithful leaders. Ezekiel 34.10, we read the following. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. Praise the Lord that he puts a stop to unfaithful shepherds. Either he puts a stop to it by turning the ears of the sheep away from those shepherds, Or he does something to the shepherds. 
He works in the sheep or he works in the shepherd. If the shepherd won't listen, the sheep will. No longer, Ezekiel says, shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Praise the Lord. Jeremiah 3.15, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Praise God that the vast majority of the pastors I know and the, the, the people that are serving in churches faithfully across our own community and around our nation, around the world, are men prophesied by Jeremiah 3.15. They're just wanting to feed and care for God's sheep. They're not the ones that get podcasted about. They're not the ones that end up on the news. And, and we need to guard ourselves from that because the good reporting isn't happening. The men who are humble and trying to serve aren't getting talked about because they're just trying to be behind the scenes anyway. They're not trying to get attention for themselves. And that's the vast majority of God's people and the vast majority of shepherds that serve God's people. They're given by the Lord to feed his people, imperfect though they be, repentant sinners though they be, with knowledge and understanding. And even those faithful shepherds who are imperfect shepherds were called under-shepherds for a reason. (laughs) Because all of God's people have a chief shepherd that is free to do with us the way he wants to do with us because he is the chief shepherd. And Ezekiel 34, 23 says, I will set over my people one shepherd. My servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And praise the Lord that we have that one shepherd. We have one shepherd over us. The senior pastor of this church is not Thad Gunderson, Mark Redfern, Keith Withrow, or Keith Maddy. It's Jesus Christ. And that's not just a cool statement that gets an amen in a sermon. That's a reality whether we recognize it or not. And this is exactly where 1 Samuel is taking us. Notice the movement through the passage. Samuel's ministering in the tabernacle. Eli's house isn't. Samuel is ministering. Eli's house is criticized by the people, but Samuel finds favor with the Lord. Eli's house will end, but a new priest will be forever raised up. See, Samuel is ministering. Samuel is ministering. Samuel is ministering. What's the point? The rise of Samuel is a sign of new leadership for the people of Israel. It's a sign that God is raising up a new priest for Israel. It's a priest outside of the house of Aaron. Samuel was a Levite. He's not from the house of Aaron, so he was qualified to serve in the temple but not be a priest. And this is precisely the man that God intends to be, the priest, and the man that God intends to use. Look at chapter 2, verse 35, where we read this amazing promise. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I shall build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out and before my anointed forever. Now this is first fulfilled in Samuel. It's also likely fulfilled in Zadok. In 1 Kings chapter 2, it alludes back to this passage as a fulfillment of that passage as well. But ultimately, what's this pointing to? This is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is not from the house of Aaron either. That priesthood was a failed priesthood. Hebrews 7, verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there to have been another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Talking about someone who's eternal or 
that you can't tell the years. I don't have time to get into that. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. See, the ironic priesthood as displayed here could not completely save the people and could not save them eternally because even the priesthood was corrupt. But even the best of them, like Samuel, had to keep repeating the sacrifices when they were in the priesthood. So God promises another priest, a better priest, in every conceivable way. Hebrews 7, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Christ fulfilled the priesthood because he was the priest and the sacrifice. In 1 Samuel 2.25, Eli asks, If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Oh, I've got an answer for you, Eli. Ten verses later, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. God raised him up, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth the faithful priest, who according to Hebrews 7.25 is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for you. Dear one, you have a faithful priest serving you every day of your, of your life, interceding for you in heaven, representing you before the Father, always living to make intercession for you and able to save you to the uttermost because his priesthood is not only sufficient, it is effective. God never leaves us without hope, does he? While the priesthood was sinning here, Samuel is serving. While judgment is coming, Samuel is growing. The Lord is already at work in providing new godly leadership for his people. There are no slogans, no campaigns, no speeches. Everything's just very quiet and behind the scenes. But you've got a little boy growing up in the temple of Shiloh that's the hope of Israel. In the middle of this mess... God says, hey, as you read this horrific story, look at that little boy over there. Serving, ministering in the house of Eli. In the midst of corruption, a little boy is following Christ, following the Lord. Look at verse 18. We see a summary of what Eli's doing here. Or sorry, Samuel's doing. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. Isn't that sweet? When she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Do you see the mercy of God here? All over this passage. Hannah just wanted one son. And she sacrificed everything when she had him. She gave him over to the Lord. She knew that she would benefit nothing. Get no benefit whatsoever. He's not growing up in her house. He's growing up in the, life, in the house of Eli. And she's just paying him a yearly visit and dropping off a present. But what did the Lord do for her? Filled her quiver. Gave her children, gave her sons, gave her daughters. Even as Samuel was growing 
in the presence of the Lord. Hannah would have five additional children. Remember, Hannah had asked for Samuel, but she reserved the giving of that child exclusively to the Lord. And even as as the Lord gave her, sorry, even as Hannah gave one son to the Lord, the Lord responded by giving this barren woman five more children. This is vintage God. God will never be outgiven. God notices your sacrifices for him. And he will never not reward you. In this time, Jesus says, and in the age to come, eternal life. He will never, ever be outgiven. Your sacrifices are not in vain. He will provide. God rewards us beyond any sacrifices we make for him because he is the great giver. This is the way God works. His best work isn't flashy. It isn't noisy. It isn't dramatic. We should not become too discouraged over the Hophni and Phineases that we see as long as we see little Samuel walking around the temple of Shiloh and the pitter-patter of his little feet leading us directly to Jesus. As we read in chapter 2, verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and also with man. What, huh? I heard that verse somewhere before, and you would know, know it, I hope. Luke 2:52. the same verses are applied to Jesus as the new little Samuel emerges as a 12-year-old, hanging with the leaders of Israel, asking them questions, fulfilling the role that Samuel first did. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And brothers and sisters, we are priests as well. The priesthood is done away with in one sense, in the Old Testament sense, but the priesthood is not gone. We are the priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9, we are called to represent the Lord in every area of life, as his kingdom of priests, making known the excellencies of him who have called us out of darkness and to his marvelous light. You have the name of a priest on you as a child of God, and we need to hold that in right esteem and live according to it as we've been branded with the name of our king. That's the first point. Before we need a king, we need a faithful priest. We saw how and why we need one and how God provided one. Second, before we need a king, we need a faithful prophet. This will be a little bit shorter than the first point. So why do we need a faithful prophet? Well, the main reason we need a faithful prophet as we look back at the people of Israel here is because they didn't have one, at least not in those days. And immediately we are told that Eli wasn't going to offer much help in that regard. Look again at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. That's not encouraging. It starts with encouragement. Samuel's ministering, and then there's a promise the, the, the word of the Lord, or there's a statement of fact that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. At that time, Eli was growing old. So it's communicating something. There's a transition here. But why was there no prophet in Israel at this time? We don't, we're not told here. Why did God's people not have fresh revelation from the Lord through the prophets? Well, it was in part because his people had refused to listen to the word that he had given them. 
We see this in the example of Hophni and Phinehas. The absence of God's word among God's people was a sign of the judgment of God as God withdrew the light of his word and allowed Israel to wander in the darkness that they apparently preferred. Other passages show this reality. Remember Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, where it speaks there was a famine. There was a famine being threatened, but it was not a famine of physical food, but it was a famine of spiritual food, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Some might think, oh yes, praise God. Praise God, we don't live in that time. My goodness, the word of the Lord isn't rare anymore. We have the completed scriptures, so we don't need to worry about any of that. Wrong. Wrong. There can be a famine of hearing the word of the Lord because it's not being given, and there can be a famine of hearing the word of the Lord because it's not being heard. The word of God is given. The word of God is not heard. Always. And there's a famine. I was reading another article this week about the growing biblical illiteracy. You've surely seen it. You've encountered it. You've experienced it, no doubt. I have too. But here's the truth, that unless we as God's people are given ears to hear, the word of God remains rare among the people of God. We may have the scriptures, but we refuse to read them. We refuse to hear them. We refuse to listen to them. We refuse to obey them. And in that sense, the word of God is rare. Starvation may come from the absence of food, but starvation can come through a lack of appetite as well. Do you have an appetite for the word of God? Brothers and sisters, if we don't, we need to get in it. You don't have to have an appetite to get into the Word of God. I rarely do. But when I do, my hunger grows. And I'm, I know, no doubt you've experienced that as well. Sometimes the, word of, the hunger for the Word of God is strong. Sometimes it's at a low ebb. But we have to do something about that. We can't let that be steady-state Christianity for us. If the Word of God is in a low ebb in your life, you are in a very dangerous place spiritually. And you need to take it, because there's about a hundred warnings in the New Testament that would tell you to address that. Not because God won't save you, but if you're saved, you'll heed the warnings. That's how you show you're saved. You take God's word seriously. You say, God, I'm not content with this. This is not okay. It's not okay for me to hunger more for breakfast than Bible. It's not okay. It's, I have to... If, if man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's true. I don't feel it right now, but that's true. Lord, help me to get in your word. This was apparently what had happened in the house of Eli. We're told that Eli tried to speak to his sons about their sin, but what happened? They just wouldn't listen to him. And so God responds to Eli with the following words in chapter 2, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli. He sent, evidently, He's not called a prophet, but it's some sort of prophetic activity going on here. Some representative, it could have been another person in the tabernacle, likely, went to Eli, talked to him about it. It says, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up on my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? 
I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I shall cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to the grave, to the grieve, to, out to grieve his heart and, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And we know this is fulfilled because in chapter 3, verse 2, we read, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, could not see. God is judging the house of Eli. Now, say, why, are they, why is God judging Eli? It was Hophni and Phinehas that were doing the deed. Eli wasn't there participating in that. Hold on, look at chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. Chapter 3, verse 12, On that day I, sh- I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. And he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Sobering, sobering words. What did Eli fail to do? Well, he is to be commended, first of all, for speaking to his sons. He, but he, he is to be rebuked for not taking the action necessary to expel them from the priesthood for their sacrificial and sexual immorality. See, Eli might have protested, but his sons remained employed. There was no church discipline, we might say. Perhaps... He could not have prevented his sons from sinning, but he could have at least have prevented them from doing it as priests. In chapter 1, verse 16, Eli accused Hannah, remember last week, of being a wicked woman. He thought she was drunk. But in chapter 2, verse 12, it's his own sons that are the wicked ones. Eli rebuked Hannah as someone who thought that he thought was wicked but actually wasn't, and yet wouldn't rebuke his sons as wicked even though he knew they were, or wouldn't remove them from the priesthood. And as a result, as Hannah sang in her song in chapter 2, verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. That's fulfilled in the judgment on Eli's house. As we read in chapter 3, verse 36, the following, or chapter 3, near the, let me find it, chapter 2, verse 26. Yeah, 2, verse 26, not 3, verse 36. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Hannah's song is being fulfilled here. Those who have stolen bread are now forced to beg for it. Why did he do this? Why did God send this judgment on the house of Eli? Well, because he honored his sons more than he honored God. He tolerated sin because he preferred his boys over preferring God. 
when push comes to shove, Eli would rather please his boys than please his God. And we know that temptation, don't we? Family is strong. And we'll almost do anything to rationalize it. Eli's more concerned with keeping the peace with his wicked sons than showing fidelity to God. And we have to caution ourselves here for us as parents, don't we? We dishonor God when we turn a blind eye to our children's sin and fail to discipline them. We can try to take the road of Eli and hope it will just go away if we talk to them. But in the end, as Proverbs 29:15 says, a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Parents, we must be willing, especially when our children are younger, to discipline our children not just with words but with actions. And as they get older, that discipline changes, but it's necessary. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Proverbs 26.3, a whip for the horse, a bride for the don- bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. If the donkey is refusing to obey you, if the horse won't go where you want it to go, gentle pleadings and loud rebukes won't motivate it to go differently. The horse and the donkey don't understand that. They understand, you know what they do understand? Pain. Discipline your child where there is hope and do not set your desire on putting him to death. Proverbs 19.18. See, Eli was responsible for something. He was not responsible for Hophni and Phinehas' sin. He was responsible for his play in it, his endorsement of it. Eli was responsible for his adult children while they were working under his authority in the priesthood. While we can't control or be held responsible for the sins of our children when they are independent, we are responsible for what we do while they are living under our roof and receiving our support. If, like Jonah, they are committed to go to Tarshish, Don't pay their fare there. Many parents in our day are providing their adult children with room and board, vehicles, insurance, cell phones, money. In spite of their adult children being sexually immoral, lazy, financially irresponsible, and abusing substances. If we were afraid, with much prayer and wisdom, or we are, to take away their support, and if necessary, remove them from our home, we become the very enablers that Eli was to his sons. Now a word for children as well. You are responsible to the Lord for you, and you can't blame your parents for how you turn out. They influence you, yes. They shape you in many ways. You make the decisive choices. We see this. Why would God judge Hophni and Phinehas otherwise? Why would he just hold Eli predominantly responsible? He holds them both responsible for the various ways they contributed to sin. God is just. So while Eli was far from a perfect parent and was held responsible for his failure, his sons were held responsible for their actions as well. And I want to remind you of something, dear ones. Samuel was raised in Eli's house too. He didn't have the best Christian upbringing, did he? I don't serve the Lord. My parents, they didn't represent Christ well. This pastor could use that. Could you? Kids, could you? You are responsible for your life before the Lord. And your parents will be held responsible too. And you can ensure that. But never let that eclipse your responsibility either. It's too easy. Parents blame kids. Kids blame parents. You stand before God. You stand before God, and that's, that's going to be enough on the day of judgment for all of us. 
Sobering things, right? But real things, real things this passage teaches us and real things we need to listen to. But again, not without hope and not without great promises from God to enable us to keep these hard commands and do these hard things. For we come finally to how God provides a prophet. Look at this encouraging word we read. Eli's getting older, he's dying, but look at chapter 3, verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And that can be said over all of our lives. The lamp of God has not gone out. And because of Christ's resurrection, it's at high noon. There is great hope in Christ. In verses 4 through 11 and 15 through 18, which I'm not going to read. We read those on the front end of the sermon. But God begins calling Samuel. He speaks to Samuel. And Samuel doesn't understand it. He's a boy. He doesn't understand what's going on. He goes to Eli. Eli says, go back to bed. But finally, after repeated calls, Eli says, this is the word of the Lord. And then Samuel has to do something, right? Samuel has to do something very difficult. He had to do something that Eli wasn't willing to do. Make the hard call. Samuel, as a young boy, goes up and has a really difficult conversation with Eli because he's the one who's sent to tell Eli, God's bringing your family down. Can you imagine? Put yourself in Samuel's shoes there. Oh, that's hard. But how does, Samuel respond, or how does Eli respond? Good. It is the word of the Lord, let it be done as he's determined. That's a sober, sober moment. But Samuel did it, and Eli received it. Praise God for a faithful prophet. Aren't you faithful? Aren't you thankful when somebody will tell you the hard thing that you know you need to hear? I don't like it. I I generally like to be a go-along, get-along guy. I don't like having to look my people I love in the eye and share hard things like this. But I would not be faithful if I didn't. And I have a charge to keep and a God to stand before one day. And I don't want him to be. You pull punches, Mark. These are my people. I love them. They need to hear these things. Don't you dare. Don't, don't, don't soften that. I feel that every single week of my life. But I get encouragement here from a guy like Sam, a boy rebuking me. I never had to do this. <laughs> I never had to go to a priest in Israel and say, by the way, God's killing you. But Samuel did it. And we read the blessing that comes from this hard decision. And this is where I'll conclude. I know we're going a little long. Appreciate your patience. First Samuel three nineteen. Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared at, again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. As Eli's house is fading, fading, fading from view, Samuel is reaching up and growing and proclaiming a a word from the Lord that is being received by all, or at least heard in all of Israel, and his reputation is growing in Israel as one through whom God is speaking. And there is no more sure sign of God's grace than when God's word has free course among his people. Brothers and sisters, we are rich 
in the grace of God. For Lord's Day after Lord's Day, the teaching of the Word of God stands at the heart of this church's life together. In any church where there's preaching and teaching that takes place where the Scriptures are clearly taught and accurately and helpfully preached, and there you find a people feasting on the goodness of God, God's Word written, preached, welcomed among the people, is a blazing token of God's grace to us as His people. It is a sure sign that God is among us. Lord, say to me whatever you want to say. Your servant is listening. And if you're that way and I'm that way, we are always in a place where God will happily and gladly dwell with us. Never stiff harm his word. If we hear and heed the word, we are blessed beyond belief. And we have this function in each other's lives as the church. It's not just here. It's um, all of us have word ministry. Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love to one another, we grow up in Christ. So we have a responsibility to encourage and admonish and equip and challenge and give warning and give encouragement to each other in the body of Christ. This is our responsibility. We have a prophetic, lowercase p, role as, as God's people. We're not prophets in Samuel's sense or prophets in Jesus' sense, but we do have a role of ministering the word of God to each other. Romans 15, 14, we're told, you are able to instruct one another. And we, all your pastors believe that. We are able to instruct one another. Today, there is no Samuel, but that does not mean that we don't have a greater prophet. For long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is that prophet. Let's never stop listening to our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful um, for your word. We're thankful for the ways in which your word shapes and molds and challenges and encourages. And Lord, this is, a, this is a passage that is difficult to read because it contains some really sad, dark moments in the life of the people of Israel, but it also shines a light on the ways in which we sin and struggle but it gives us so much hope. We have a priest who intercedes for our sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. We have a great prophet who speaks to us, and we say, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So thank you, Jesus, for not giving up on us as your people. Thank you for bearing with us in our weakness. And thank you for continuing to give us faithful shepherds, giving us a church family of priests that love us and intercede for us and pray for us and encourage us. Give us gifts beyond our blessings, all of our sacrifices, blessing us beyond everything we could ever imagine in certain ways. You are so good to us, and ultimately you've given us eternal life, and you've given us a, a, a purpose in this life of representing you as a kingdom of priests and making known your excellencies among everyone. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us as individuals. Have mercy on us as families and parents and children. Have mercy on us as a church. Keep us faithful. Keep us repentant. God, have mercy on us. We are so needy. We are so prone to wander but we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, even joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and tensions of the heart, not so that we will be condemned,
but that we will be sweetly, sweetly drawn back to you as the source and author of our faith. We come to you that way this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.